So following up on what Donald was talking about and how do we look at this question of interbeing in relation to, um, to other humans, particularly humans that we don't really want to interbe with. <laughs> it's fine to interbe with the people I like, but the people I don't like, uh, they're me, I'm them, we're related, yuck. Um, so I, wanna, I was going to talk on, this is a talk that I wrote some time ago and actually recently was in a, uh, published in a magazine and I'll give you a more elaborate version of it. And it's called The Seven Reasons Why It's Better Not to Hate, Even If They're Greedy, Corrupt, Horrible, and Completely Deserve It. <laughs> that was the title. It was in this um, recent issue that both Donald and I had a piece in on uh, Tricycle and the Politics issue. So you're welcome to look at that. I brought some uh, copies of uh, what I have in there, which I'll get out maybe at the end. Yeah, or whatever. Um, so, so, what is hatred? It's such an interesting question. You know, in, in Buddhism, we talk about greed, hatred, and delusion, or confusion, as being the source of all of our suffering. They're called the three. Kalesas, or the three, the, or the three, well, the th three root poisons: greed, hatred, and delusion. And hatred, to me, is so interesting because we need to distinguish it a little from things that can look like it. Because sometimes, and it's some, sometimes you hear talk about, oh, well, you should never ever get angry, right? I mean, you hear that. You hear that in Buddhist circles quite a bit. Or the moment you have anger, we need to transform it into something else because it's, it's, um, it's the source of suffering. It's one of the root poisons. But I actually see hatred as different than anger. Hatred, when my mind feel, when I feel hatred, I feel like I'm completely closed in and like there's a big kind of black rock in my heart. And it's just... Ugh, and it, it feels disgusting. <laughs> I, mean, I don't know if you, if you can really discriminate hatred. It, sometimes it feels kind of green and like slimy. <laughs> and sometimes, and, and oftentimes, of course, it's projected out. So there's a big difference between feeling the hatred internally and the projection outward. That person is worthy of my hate because look what they did, you know. Um, they took my parking space, <laughs> whatever it is. So. So as distinguished from anger, which is an energy where there's a kind of rage or a, or, a, or a power energy that comes through us. Now the problem with anger is often it's intermingled with hatred and oftentimes it, um, it acts out, right? That's the problem. So we act, we're angry, we say something or we do something we later regret. But the energy of anger is actually this pure kind of, when it's, when it's not tempered by the other stuff, it's like a pure kind of power that comes through us. And it's the power of the of, of justice. You know, it's energy, and it's it's you know, it's I deserve this, or I, someone did an injustice to me, and now I'm angry. And then we start tempering it with all sorts of qualities. And so, all this as I talk about it, I'm kind of getting charged up with <laughs> the energy of something. I hope it's I hope it's justice <laughs> and not um, hatred. I don't feel hate. I don't feel hatred. <laughs> so, so I want to talk about how to work with the hatred energy, and or, or the re, or and, and, and on the level of um, 
of practices that we can do to not to, to deal with the hatred when it comes up, and because we all are experiencing anger, hate, and I'll, I may use anger interchangeably, but I did want to discriminate it in the beginning. Um, but we're experiencing it so much, particularly in relation to the political situation. And keep in mind that it's not just it, every practice that I'm going to offer and every reflection I'll offer. You can apply it to your boss. You can apply it to your brother. You can apply it to you know anything. It doesn't. It doesn't matter. And it's not by inviting us to reflect on our hatred and to work on transforming our hatred. It's not to disempower ourselves. It's not to 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 be so kind of goody goody that we let our president get away with everything he's getting away with because we can't hate and we're being good and no 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 no. <laughs> it's to it's so that we can act from a different place so that we can act from a place of um, clarity, wisdom, and and vision and really transform the world from a saner place. I think. So here are the seven reasons. And the first reason is that hatred hurts. So I was describing hatred, and I was describing kind of what it is. And hatred itself is a quality of mind that's a really unpleasant quality, actually. And the Buddha talked about it as holding a hot coal. And that when, we're, um, when we have hatred in our mind, it's like a burning coal in our hand. It's burning us. Is it burning the person we're hating? No, <laughs> it's burning us. So it's a quality of mind that we're, we're developing. And one of the things we often talk about in Buddhism is whatever you practice, you will cultivate. Whatever you practice will grow. So if you plant, I mean, it's just like planting, you plant a fig tree, you're going to get, you plant a fig seed, you're going to get a fig tree at some point. If you practice hatred, you're going to be more hateful. You just are. It's the, way, it's the way the mind works. If you practice generosity, you'll start to be more generous. It's just, it's, it's like any practice. It develops whatever. So what do you want your mind to be like? It's a very interesting question. What do you want in your mind? Hatred and, and ra- like violent, mean-directed ill will? Or kind, compassion, clear-seeing, discrimination? They're very different kinds of minds. The Buddha said, with, e- um, with every drop of water, the water bucket fills. And what that means is that when whatever we drop into our bucket, you know, it just seems like one little drop of hatred. But then a couple years later, you look down and the entire bucket is filled with the, the water of hatred. So what do you want in your bucket? What do you want in your mind? So that's number one. Two. <laughs> No one is eternally or inherently anything. So this is true. George Bush, well, I bet his parents thought he was really cute when he was little or sweet or they loved him. They probably still do. You know, I mean, he, I'm going to, I don't want to pick on poor George this entire talk. We can throw out different people, but... Um, <laughs> <laughs> So, so the assumption that, that a single person is always a person worthy of our hate is actually just logically false. I mean, it's, it's just we, uh, a person, when he's sleeping, is he, is he hate worthy? <laughs> when he's um, 
What if he's doing something sweet? I mean, people do. It's just anyway. It's just to remind your mind that it's not. It's it's a little bit uh, simplistic, but it's to remind your mind that it's that no one is an, always anything. And we know this from the Buddhist teachings because we talk about that. Donald was talking about um, the sense of separate self. We also sometimes refer to it as no inherent existence, no self that we can point to that's inherently. This is, this is a Diana, and, and I'm always good, bad, smart, funny, stupid. You know, none of those qualities permanently exist within me, and therefore, in the person that we hate, it doesn't exist with them. So just a couple of examples. One it comes is historical from the time of the Buddha about, uh, some of you may know this, Angulimala, who was a, um, he was a criminal. And there's a whole story, I don't know if I have enough time for it right now, but basically he was, um, he, he, I won't go into that part, but he ended up, for a variety of circumstances, becoming this, the most evil, horrible bandit criminal in the history of the time that the Buddha lived, and he was killing thousands and thousands of people, and he would go around and he would, anybody he murdered, he would then take their finger off and turn it into a garland. And so until he finally had a garland of, it, of 999 fingers around his, his head. And that's why it's called anguli means finger and mala means garland. So he was just, just this terrible, horrible human being. And the Buddha, with his omniscience, saw that he was about to kill his own mother. And this is considered, in Buddhist teachings, this is considered one of the, the worst things that you could possibly do, is to kill a parent. And, so the, and he also saw that within Angulimala was the potential for, uh, for liberation in this evil criminal. So he went and he chased after Angulimala, and then he, he stood right in front of Angulimala, and Angulimala then thought, oh, well, I'm just going to kill this guy in front of me. He didn't know that it was the Buddha, of course. And so he started running after the Buddha, trying to kill him. And every time he'd get closer, the Buddha, with his magical powers, would manage to get a little bit further away. And so, but yet the Buddha didn't seem to be moving. And so Angulimala would, well, I don't know, it was all quite magical back then. And Angulimala would kind of run after him with his, his machete or something. And, and the Buddha would just be standing there, and he could never touch him. And finally, Angulimala said to the Buddha, why won't you stop? And the Buddha replied, I have stopped. Now what about you? And in that moment, there was a complete transformation, complete. And apparently, he I don't know if it happened exactly then or then he went and he meditated for a while, but he became a fully enlightened being within a, a very short time. So this evil criminal transformed. No one is inherently or permanently anything. And it's so interesting the way that we create them, we turn them into things that we can hate. And then just, this happened to me fairly, I don't know, last year I was driving, I was driving my car, I was driving down um, in Berkeley, and I was wanting to make a left turn. And there was a person, there were three lanes, so there was the regular lane, there was a, like a center lane that would have gone forward, and then a left turn lane. And I was in the left turn lane, but there was a person in the center lane trying to turn left. And I just got so irritated, and I was late, and I had to get somewhere, and I'm like, what are you doing? You jerk, I can't believe you're making a left turn from the middle lane, what are you doing? And I'm, and I'm like honking, and finally, finally the person makes a left turn, and I get to drive past, and I look over to the side, and it was my friend. 
then I was, and then I saw her, and I went. <laughs> and um, it just, it just really hit home to me that oh my God, the way we create an enemy and they, we turn it into this permanent thing, and yet it could be your friend. We don't know. The third story that came to me was a time when I was at the Nevada desert test site uh, a few years ago, and we were doing this protest where we were, it was, it was one of our Buddhist protests where we were doing witnessing in front of the test site, and, um, and this is, you know, where the nuclear tests have happened for the last, gosh, I don't know how long, 50, 40 years, 50 years, something like that. And, um, so anyway, we did this protest. We were doing this protest, and we had all our very kind of serious. We did. We tried to do meta for the for the test site, and we we spoke about the injustice, and people talked about how they were feeling, and there you know there was a lot going on. And finally, at the end, you people were deciding whether or not to do civil disobedience, and we had I think we had made an agreement that we we had told the cops that that day we were not going to do civil disobedience, and then. Somebody in our group decided he wanted to cross the line and then get arrested, which the cops don't want to deal with because it's a big hassle for them. They have to take him in and bring him. It just kind of ruins their day, you know. And um, so anyway, the guy decided to do it. He did. He he crossed the line. He got arrested, and people were really pissed off, and they were pissed off at the cops, and he was pissed off at the cops, and the cops were pissed off at us, and there was just a whole thing going on. Well, in that moment, um, suddenly we were done. We I th oh right, we were done, and then. We're getting in our cars to go, and my boyfriend locks my keys in the car. <laughs> and we're just all done. We'd been out in this land for hours, you know, days, and, I'm, and we're like, "Oh, what are we gonna do?" So we tried to call AAA, and no one's cell phone. Is, so finally, someone said, "You know, we're gonna have to ask the cops for help." <laughs> so we did, <laughs> and they were totally nice. You know, they were really willing to help, and it was fine. They brought someone in, and it was just such this funny moment of, these are my enemies. You know, they they tried to, they got really mad at us, and they, anyway, you get the picture. So, so just some examples of experiences where this happens, where we see that truth that no one is permanently anything in particular. The third one is, we're that way too. And this is somewhat what Donald was pointing to this morning when he talked about the, inter, the interdependence and seeing the greed and the hatred and the confusion within our own minds, because it's there too. And when I think about it, I think that it, it's so illuminating when I can get to that place where I say, ah, yeah, you know, I'm so, I'm so angry at what, or let's say I'm, I'm angry at Bush for doing such and such, and then, ooh, look at my anger. He's acting in an angry way. I'm acting in an angry way. I can see, you can just see the inner relationship between um, my own anger and the external reflection. And it's just, it's just quite interesting when I begin to reflect that way. So some examples for that are when I was, this is at, actually at the WTO protest, um, where I decided to make my interdependence conscious. So that morning, I got up the day of the big protests, and I put on a shirt that I had from The Gap. And I said, you know what? I'm part of this. I don't want to be in denial. There's a way that I'm interdependently entwined in the very structures that I'm opposing. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show it to myself. And it was a profound teaching. 
a reminder. And it, what it did, it kind of chilled me out a little bit in a way that I might have been more, uh, I don't know, more aggressive or more blaming, I guess. When I think about this, I think about the way it could be any of us. You know, the violence that people perpetrate, it could be any of us doing it. When I think Rwanda is such an amazing story of this. It's, it's, it's friends and neighbors turning against each other and committing unbelievable acts of atrocity all in this short period of time when um, they had previously been, you know, people they borrowed a cup of rice from <laughs> or something, right? That's, it's, kind of, it's kind of extraordinary. The, the, I found a quote in the in New York Times a while back where the, um, the woman, the director of Human Rights Watch, had said something to the effect like, it could happen, it could have been any of us. You think Rwanda is an isolated incident. If you had that level of poverty and fear mm -hmm. and propaganda and et cetera, et cetera, it could have been any of us. And I remember that. I also think, I mean, the Milgram experiments, for those of you who are familiar with them, are just such a great example of that. And is anybody not familiar with the Milgram experiments? Yeah, yeah. It, it, it was when, um, when he, this was in the 60s, he got a bunch of um, actors to be, to be sort of the subjects of a, of a, a ta of a experiment, and then he hired he hired real people to be to administer electric shock to the actors. So it wasn't really happening, and they started turning up the the volume uh, on the electric shock. And these ordinary people off the street began to administer more and more electric shock until, and the actors would be going ah, <laughs> right? But they would do it until it was far far um, more than enough to kill the person. And, um, and they did it because the experimenter told them to and said, you know, this is what we're doing. This is the thing, and if you're going to pay attention, and this, this is documented. This is, I mean, you can read about it all over the place. It's, um, so anyway, point being, uh, it can happen to any of us. If we're in the conditions, the causes and conditions that could bring this on, we could be, I mean, how would you be? I'm just asking this. Maybe if you were in power, <laughs> You would be the most compassionate, benevolent uh, politician, but maybe you wouldn't. Maybe you would suddenly special interests would come into mind, or maybe maybe you would be. I mean, what if someone said, "If you if you promote my tobacco, <laughs> such and such, I'll give you five hundred thousand dollars." I mean, I don't know. Maybe you would say, "No, no, I'm completely ethical, and that's disgusting." But I'm just I'm just pointing out that that it, it's not that far away from any of us. <clears throat> the fourth one is always a little rough. Um, we don't know if we're right, for sure. We don't know for sure if we're right. And this is really, this points to a lot of different things. It points to the fact that, I mean, maybe if you look, if you think back in your own history and you think, oh, you know, remember that time I believed passionately in such and such, and now I don't believe in it at all? Or I have a lot of friends from the Buddhist Peace Fellowship who used to be militant revolutionaries who were involved with things like the weather underground. And now they wouldn't be caught dead killing a fly. So it's, like, it's so interesting to see the way people's beliefs shift and change over time. Um, just just to, to catch you up, Nancy, we're, I'm kind of giving reasons why, we shouldn't, why it's a good idea not to hate. 
Um, so, so just sometimes I reflect on uh, when I was when I was in college, I was this extremely angry. Um, I was I was really into feminist politics, and I and I went to. The, I remember I ended up uh, ending a relationship because of this person lived in a fraternity house, and that was my reason for breaking up. It had nothing to do with the relationship, it had, but it was it, it just like just looking back at our history and seeing the times that we get really stuck in our views, and how there's so much more fluidity when we can not be so attached to our views, and. Um, the Buddha talks about the tremendous level of suffering that comes from attachment to views. That even, and this is something my teacher Joseph often says, he says, even if um, that attachment to views will always cause suffering, even if we're right. Because the mind is going, and it's stuck there. And then who? what happens? You, you get confronted, you get you have to hold it, you have to sustain it in order to sustain that sense of self and of being right. So I'm not suggesting that you just say, oh, well, you know, going to Iraq and murdering people is, is it might be a, right, a good thing, you know, maybe, I don't know, what do I know? I'm trying to not be attached to my views. That's not what I'm suggesting. Because there are things, there are, there are things that we can know with clarity and wisdom. So it's not to be wishy-washy or disempowered or act, in a way that's um, that's not about clear seeing. I was just reading. I'm reading this book right now. I don't know if any of you read it. I just completely recommend it. It's uh, Mountains Beyond Mountains: The Life of Paul Farmer, who's a doctor in Haiti, who's been doing a, a years for about 20 years living in Haiti, administering to the poor. And it's just an absolutely phenomenal book. He's kind of like a Mother Teresa type character, except he has a really great sense of humor, and and um, it's a fantastic book. But he says he talks about things that he and his friends call AMC, areas of moral clarity. <laughs> and they're things you can't really dispute, that people are hungry and they need food. <laughs> people are poor and they need to be, that needs to be redressed. And, um, and at the same time, so can we, can we see clearly, but at the same time not be so attached, be flexible. This speaks to a willingness to listen. And I think this has come up some in our retreat. Are we willing to hear what the other side says. Are we willing to not be so tightly clinging to our view that there might be room for movement, for exchange, for sharing, so forth? Five. <laughs> you can't fight karma. So this, this, this brings up a few points. In the Buddhist teachings, we talk about karma being, um, karma is, is just the word means action. And then, so there's usually action and the results of our action. So according to karma, when you act in an unwholesome, harming way, you're going to have unwholesome and harming results. So I'm, I'm simplifying a huge doctrine in three sentences. But um, so what this means is that for, it means two things. It means that for those who act in ways that are harmful and lead to, um, lead to great suffering, there will be re repercussions if you believe in the Buddhist worldview. You may not believe in it. Um, but, and we don't necessarily know, unfortunately, <laughs> we don't necessarily know when those repercussions will be. So that's why you, someone who acts really unskillfully and hurtfully may 
we may not understand the result that they're receiving. And it may be all about their internal results. It may not be like, you know, they kill someone so they get killed. The karma isn't that simple in any way. But it's, um, it's uh, what it does, and this is the second point, is that it reminds us, or it reminds me anyway, to have some compassion. Because what if people, there is some kind of retribution or result of actions. So, I, so just, just to give you the, the classic example of all of this is the Dalai Lama. The Dalai Lama has tremendous compassion for the Chinese. The Chinese people who have who've committed genocide on his entire culture over these last 50 years. And yet, if you ask him, he feels compassion for the karma of the, of the Chinese. He's, wor- he's kind of concerned what's going to happen to them. Don't get hung up on this one, because this one takes a little kind of doctrinal pulling apart, and it's, it's not worth it. If it's helpful, if it made sense to you, uh, internalize it, but otherwise, don't worry about it. The sixth is, <clears throat> through understanding, compassion will come. So one of, the, one of the earliest teachings that I got that has been so helpful to me in so many situations throughout my life has been when, it was actually Christopher, he said, when, um, when I'm not feeling compassion, I ask myself, what is it I don't understand? It's really, really interesting. It's usually that we don't see the full picture. We don't see the full picture of the forces that create a bush or a Rumsfeld or your boss. Like it's usually this massive web of, of conditions. Maybe they were abused as a child. Maybe um, you know, they've grown up in this old boy network where they were forced to be in a certain way. Maybe, I mean, you know, I, mean I could just imagine all sorts of things. But sometimes what it's useful to do when I'm really, really stuck on a person is to just take a moment and think, just like you did with the pen or the pillow or the piece of paper, what is the whole web of conditions that brought this person to where they are in this moment? And then sometimes I'll kind of relax and say, oh, God, that must have been really hard. That kind of privilege, that kind of unexamined privilege, wow, what sort of, what results has that had on the psyche? couple of stories for me, and just to say that Donald's story when he was talking about his experience with that person at, a, at the university, um, that was exactly it. He just began to reflect and see this whole web of interrelating conditions, and it allowed him to act with more compassion. I remember once being in India on, a, on the top of a bus going from Bodh Gaya to Gaya, which is the town, the closest kind of main town to Bodh Gaya. And the bus was just packed. And, um, and so we were on the top, and then the top was packed, and there was all these people, on, I mean, just all these people. And it's in the poorest, Bagai is in one of the poorest states of India. And, um, and so there were these men. And one of the things about if you're a, a Western woman in India is you often get quite stared at. And I was, getting, I was getting a lot of the men staring at me and making comments. And it was really hard. And there was this one guy who was just 
freaking me out. I was, this was maybe 10 years ago, and he was staring at me, and he was really like scary looking, and he, I remember he kind of had no teeth, and he was, he, had, he was wearing this horrible like scarf that was threadbare, and he kept kind of wanting to touch me, and I was just totally freaked out. And suddenly my friend turned to me, and she just said, God, he's so poor. And in that moment, I just, I just relaxed, and I felt, actually, I felt metta coming towards him, compassion. It's like I couldn't, I didn't understand, and that's what prevented me from, from being okay with, with it. And not that it meant that I should not protect myself or be strong or maybe even say something, particularly if he did touch me. You know, I could still, as Sharon Salzberg once talked about when she was in India and these, there were people kind of trying to touch her and she went to her teacher and said, uh, and, and said something like, well, why didn't, I, I, had to be, I had to be good and accepting and calm even though these men were trying to, to grab me and her teacher looked at her and said, with all the kindness in your heart, you should have your, taken your umbrella and smacked them. <laughs> <laughs> so it's not, you get my point. <laughs> this was actually Deepama who is this wonderful, um, spiritually very, very enlightened person, so to speak. So, so they're, they're both sides. Just one more story that, with that, and then I'll get to the last one, and, um, which is that when my, I, I was recently at a talk, and this woman, woman stood up and said that she had been in Iran during the, um, during the revolution, and she had friends who were being, the, the, it, particularly the, like, I, don't, I can't remember this, the exact history of it, but one of her, her friends was this intellectual who was being, the military was trying to um, basically tear apart his house and throw him out of the country. And so she went to his house to see what was going on. And when she was in there, there were all these young boys and they were in the, they were in the house and they were ripping the whole thing and throwing things out the window and using their guns and shooting up the whole house. And she was just kind of horrified. And at one point, and they were looking for some kind of proof or something. And at one point, one of the, the young soldiers grabbed this thing and lifted it up and started waving it around and waving it and goes, what is this? What is this? Like it was some violent thing. And, it was a tennis racket. <laughs> and she thought, oh my God, you know, this is, this is, this is who is in the army. These are people that, that, it, that he's so poor and so, you know, he's never even experienced a tennis racket. He's never seen a tennis racket before. And it just led her to see this whole, again, this whole web of conditions that led to military violence. The last one is that, this is not my quote, this is the Buddha. Hatred will never cease with hatred. Only through love will hatred cease. And um, this, is, this is, we see this again in the legacy, the history of Martin Luther King, of what we saw last night, of what, of Gandhi, of uh, what Thich Nhat Hanh is teaching. We see it. Because, and, and some of us have had our own experience with, if you respond with violence and anger, you get violence and anger back, or hatred back. And um, this is when Thich Nhat Hanh says, be peace, or he calls it being peace. In other words, embodying that which you want to see, embodying the change you want to see. This is, um, 
A.J. Musty, the um, famous activist who said, uh, <laughs> my mind went completely blank in that moment. <laughs> it's like, I know he said something good. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> there is no way to peace. Peace is the way. <laughs> Thank you. Um, this, this talk is interdependent. It depends on all of you to, <laughs> to function. Um, so, it, so, it's ha- so it, taking that principle to heart and embodying it. And um, So I'll just leave us with that because there's a lot here. There's a lot that I've said. This talk was given by Diana Winston at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on September 17, 2004. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed Audio Archive. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.